thanks to our title sponsor, National University. National University is committed to supporting veterans, active duty personnel, and military families through flexible online courses and master's and doctoral programs in high-demand fields, providing excellent career advancement opportunity. National University is a yellow ribbon school that proudly accepts the post-9-11 GI Bill and goes the extra mile by offering additional assistance to cover expenses that may not be covered by the GI Bill. To learn more, visit nu.edu forward slash veteran. This is the Fighter Pilot Podcast, episode 68. Bomber month is over, it's a new year, and a guest co-host and I are going to kick it off right with some brief announcements, a few listener questions, and then our feature segment, a discussion on the Saab JAS-39 Gripen Omni-Roll Fighter with special guest Mikhail Griev, a former lieutenant in the Swedish Air Force. Strap in for the Fighter Pilot Podcast, the internet radio show that explores the fascinating world of air combat, the aircraft, the weapon systems, and most importantly, the people. Now, here's your host, retired U.S. Navy fighter pilot, Vincent Aiello. Well, Happy New Year, everyone. I am your host, Jello, and this is episode 68. It is January 3rd, 2020. At least that's when this is airing. And joining me in studio today is my special guest co-host, Trey Kalish. You remember him from episode 15 on Night Carrier Landings way back in May of 2018. It's been a while, dude. How's it going, Fish? It's going pretty good, Jello. Life's good. I'm uh, no worse for wear after last night's party and all the parties <laughs> from the holiday season. Oh, but- man. Thank you for having me back on the show. This is really fun doing this. Oh, good. You're welcome. Well, thanks for having me and my wife over last night. That was a lot of fun. You guys throw a good party. It reminded oh, yeah. me of the old squadron days. Yeah, that's that's what we go for, you know. <laughs> and as you mentioned earlier, when we were just talking, lots of people that are not from our community, mm-hmm. and they have a lot of fun doing that stuff too. So it's fun oh, yeah. to introduce them to uh, the way that we roll. Good. Well, we did a white elephant exchange, and I rolled out with a few goodies. So uh, it was good times all around. All right. So let's see. Last time the listener heard from you, it's been a little while. You were still on active duty. I think you were enrolled in a postgraduate degree program, and you were looking to retire from the Navy before long and start your own business. So what's new since then? So I did finish that MBA. Okay. Thank goodness. Uh, that took a lot of time, as you experienced doing yours. Yep. And that was back in June. So I've had a lot of free time. Okay. Uh, I wouldn't call it free time. Uh, somebody told me before I finish, you're going to fill that time with something else. Oh, and yeah. so I found plenty of stuff to do. And one of those is a transition. So I'm still active duty. But doing the transition right now. So in, on June 1st next year, All right. I'll be out of the Navy. So a couple of June milestones. One this past June, yep. one next June, and there's a lot to do. Okay. So June 1st of 2020. June 1st right. of 2020. You have a big celebration, I hope. And in fact, we are. Right. Yeah. In fact, my mom and dad have been telling me, oh, we got to invite all these people. Holy cow, the guest list is getting long. <laughs> yes. But um, in fact, I just invited or just asked my uh, skipper from 102. You remember Monty Ashleman? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Ash? I asked him if he would be my presiding officer nice. for the retirement ceremony. Good. So so that's what's going on. Yeah, a lot of exciting stuff, but um, a lot of changes. Well, I mentioned on the end of year recap bonus episode that aired a few days ago that you're helping out on the show now as our community manager for Twitter. Tell us what that's all about and how it's going. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, real excited. Thank you for asking me to do that, by the way. it's uh, One, I'm learning about Twitter. I'm not a millennial. I'm on the edge of the Gen X millennial there. So (laughs) Twitter was a new thing for me and uh, it's really fun to learn about and just exciting to be connected to this community and what you're doing. So what we're trying to do though, and and, uh, my role in this is to one, keep everybody up to date and, mm-hmm. and send out the announcements when we get a new episode airing, but then also stay in touch with the state current with the community right. and news that's out there, events that are happening, and also to answer questions. So right. please send your questions our way via Twitter. I'll be monitoring and, and uh, answer as quickly as I can and try to get you guys the best info we can. Perfect. You know, I have to admit, I was not very much into social media when I started the podcast a couple of years ago, and I had to learn it all. And Twitter, for whatever reason, just always languished. We were getting some followers, but not really going. And I always thought, man, if I could find someone who could just take this over, and you have done that, thank you. And I think of Twitter as just one more way for us, as you said, to announce episodes or whatever we're doing, you know, if we have a blog that comes out. But also, I think of it as our source for industry news. So you have put on there, as I have before, hey, there was a mishap over here, or Boeing is doing this over there. or So it's, it's kind of our way also of just keeping abreast, if you will, of what's going on in air, you know, military aviation. Yeah, absolutely. We want to stay with current with the news. And uh, I'm pretty sure that's what most people are using Twitter for. Yeah. So yeah, seems like yeah, we're definitely there. Cool. 
All right. So if you are following us on Twitter, you're probably talking to Fish, not me. But if for whatever reason something comes up and you have before, you're like, hey, Jello, how do you want to handle this one? Yeah. I, I appreciate that. But for the most part, you are safe for solo, as the all term right. goes in our world. So, all right, bud. Well, man, we had a wonderful bomber month. I don't know if you caught any of the episodes, but it went well. And what we did was I said, all right, I'm going to take a break in December. We're just going to play these interviews without like listener questions and all the announcements and all that. Dude, it was still a lot of work because <laughs> we did four of them and there's always something to do in the artwork and everything else. Although our episode uh, artwork by Yannick, our graphic designer was amazing. Thank you publicly, Yannick. But you know, it's always something. But the point being simply is we haven't had a chance to do any announcements or listener questions for a while. So we're going to get caught up on some of that now. We've got a lot. So we talked about that end of year recap. But Fish, I know you've caught them. Paramount has released not one, but two more Top Gun Maverick. And that's, by the way, the right terminology, as you know. But it's not Top Gun 2. It's Top Gun Top Maverick. Gun Maverick. Yep. That's mm -hmm. right. But they released another trailer and then like their own version of behind the scenes like we do. And we did some breakdowns on that. And man, it went really crazy. It's like our biggest YouTube video yet. I think 1.4 million last time I looked. Holy cow. And we're going to start doing more stuff on YouTube like we talked about. But let's see, what else did we do? Ah, we posted a new musing. It's a blog, basically, on our website. We called it The Art of Being Wrong. What I did here, Fish, was I post sometimes different things on Navy F-16s. Mm -hmm. And you and I know that we have them, but a lot of people don't. Right. And so I used some of the common responses I get as an opportunity to remind people that, yes, the Navy has F-16s. And also, yes, there are different ways you can deal with others and interact and make statements because <laughs> some of them come across one way and others come across a little more inviting of discussion. And mm -hmm. Anyway, it was just a, a few thoughts on that. But And then the last thing is we have a bunch of new Patreon supporters from the past month since we didn't announce any, and we'll do all those at the end of the month, or at the end of the episode, I should say. So how does that sound? Uh, sounds like plan. All right. The other thing we didn't do for Bomber Month, as I said, was some listener questions. So you came to answer a couple? Yes, absolutely. Okay. Well, let's start with Christian. He is from Batavia, Illinois. I hope I pronounced that correctly. Christian was recently watching the Bears football game while they were playing in Chicago and saw they had four Super Hornets fly over. However, there aren't any Naval Strike Fighter squadrons close to Illinois. Upon further investigation, I found, I being Christian here, I found out it was VFA 213 that performed the flyover. My question is, does a squadron have to put in a request to a team to do a pregame flyover, or does the team ask the military to do a flyover? How do they choose which squadron or air crew perform the flyovers? So, Fish, you got any experience with this? So I don't have any personal experience with this, but I have huh. a buddy who used to be the air ops officer at China Lake. So okay. he dealt with this on a regular basis. He even did a few flyovers for the Padres. Oh. So I actually reached out to him to find out how this actually works. Okay. I did do a flyover once for the Naval Academy, but that's a little bit of a different creature because right. I went there. So we just contacted the Naval Academy and said, hey, they always have flyovers for their football games. So that's my personal experience. It was a bit easier to do. Okay. As far as these professional teams, because they have flyovers all the time, how does that work? Well, the team actually has to request the flyover. And what they'll do is they'll request it from the chief of information of the Navy. And then that request will come down to the squadrons, the different units. They will try to pick a unit that's in proximity to that team if they, if they can. can. Mm -hmm. Or, and then one of the units, one of those squadrons will say, hey, yeah, we've got some guys that want to do this flight and they'll do that flyover. Or it could work this way. If they have a connection with the team, somehow there's some talk between them or something like that, and guys mm -hmm. know that they want to do a flyover for a particular team, they can set the team up with that request. The team will then send in that request to the chief of information, just like they're supposed to, but they can request directly to have VFA 213, let's say, right. do the flyover. Mm -hmm. Then the guys that helped organize that then come back, send their own request and say, yes, we would like to do this flyover. And then a flyover is done. So as I understand it, there's, of course, a lot of mm, rigmarole, for lack of a more technical term, that goes on at Chinfo, as you put it. Mm -hmm. And then it finds its way down to, let's say, the wing in Oceana. Right. And then the wing will disseminate to the squadrons. And as I recall, at that point, you know, the opso of a squadron might say, hey, the Bears are looking for a flyover. Hey, Fred, you're from Chicago, right? Oh, yeah. And so, you know, if you find someone from that area or just anyone who's single a lot of times, <laughs> yeah, right. you know, because they'll go out, <laughs> they'll show up. And of course, you got to fly over to a certain altitude and speed. And then a lot of times if there's a nearby base, you can land and go to the game. 
And yeah. sometimes they'll announce you at halftime or they'll give you special seats or something. And I try to remember if I did one. It's bad that I can't remember. I think <laughs> I did as a J.O., but I know I haven't since. And that's been over you know 25 years. So I guess it's okay that I've forgotten. But you know, that's a pretty cool experience you talked about right there. They yeah. get you there by halftime. And then if they can get you there, most times they can. You get a police escort from wherever that airfield is. Right. So when I did the one for the Naval Academy, we landed at Andrews Air Force Base. Okay. We got a police escort back to cool. the stadium. And we were there at halftime. And of course, we get to walk on the field. Yeah. Wait, the and you're in your flight suits and, the flight and then they suits, put yeah. the camera on you. Yeah, yeah that's pretty, pretty cool. Now, how they decide between, let's say, calling Chinfo and calling the Air Force equivalent, I don't know. But I suppose if it's someone, uh, some team, I should say, like in Phoenix, which is more of an Air Force town, they'll probably be looking to the Air Force. So I, I think there's some hometown side of it too. Yeah, definitely. The hometown side is, is definitely part of it and, mm -hmm. and what units you have around you for sure. Cool. Next, let's take a phone call. Hey, Jello. Alex here from Berkeley, California. I was wondering if you could expound on the wingman role in modern combat aviation. All of our favorite naval aviation movie sure does place a big emphasis on this role. Do you get to select your wingman or who you wingman for? Does it change from mission to mission? And what are the rules for staying with your wingman? Thanks, guys. Keep up the great work. All right, Fish. So a phone call from Alex asking about wingmen, what the role is, how they are scheduled, rules for staying together. Let's talk about wingmen. I don't know that I've done that on this show before. Let's start with actually, like if I show up in the squadron and you're already there and I'm a brand new pilot, what am I doing? What's my responsibility at that point? We reach back into the Swifty syllabus. And when you come in as a brand new pilot, right. um, you are technically not a, even a qualified wingman yet, right? Because that's what your Swifty level two is all about, is becoming a full-up wingman. Which is interesting. Now, right. Swifty, of course, being strike fighter weapons and tactics. Mm -hmm. It's the program that we use to get your qualifications as you go. Now, the FRS is supposed to make you a combat-ready wingman. It, right. Theoretically. Theoretically. <laughs> Theoretically. There's but still then a lot when to you learn. get to the squadron, to your point, you go through a level two. And then what does that do? What does that teach me? Or, or what am I going through at that point? So as a level two, you are learning the FRS uh, fleet replacement squadron. They send you out with, like you said, you're combat ready, but you've just learned the nuts and bolts. You haven't learned all the advanced tactics. You haven't, you're not, you're definitely not proficient at them. You basically got an introduction to everything. And by making it through the FRS, they felt you were accomplished enough to be able to master these things eventually right. as a wingman. Right. So that's what the Swifty Level 2 syllabus is all about. Learning how to do all of the air-to-air -air missions, all of the air-to-ground missions, recce missions. What was it, like a 17, 18 flight syllabus? Was it that many? Of course, you could have reflies theoretically. But, exactly. But, but also, uh, I would argue, or input here, that you're learning your squadron's specific way of doing it. Yeah, Because absolutely. you could have the newest jets, you could have the oldest jets. And of course, we're speaking mm -hmm. specifically Navy squadrons here. So you're learning about your squadron, your jet, your air wing, and these missions. And that's definitely it. Every air wing has its own SOPs. And like you mentioned, mm -hmm. different jets have different capabilities, even between Super Hornets. If huh. you got a, you know, a lot 21 versus a lot 32, there's a lot of difference. In the Just capabilities. a different radar even. Exactly. Mm -hmm. yeah. 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 It's definitely what it's all about. But yeah, so that's, uh, there's the progression. And the first progression is to become a I forget what, what was the term. I don't even remember what it was. Uh, just a level, level two. two you just a, level two, or uh, just a wingman, wingman, I guess. Wingman? I don't know. Someone will probably know. correct us. but Or we can look into that, I guess. <laughs> so that's what a new guy coming into the squadron would be. You're, okay. And so now the, I guess the, the next step here is uh, what do you do as a wingman? What does that right. mean to be a wingman? Yes. Right? Well, I guess uh, first off, probably the biggest thing that you learn is about mutual support. Yes. Yes, the lead is the lead and is directing the flight and that sort of thing, but you both have roles you're supposed to play and you're supporting each other. And there's different kinds of support that you can provide. Right. So kind of putting this in the context where I think the question is coming from is Top Gun, you never leave your wingman. That's sort of <laughs> right, stuff, of right? You know, yeah, absolutely. I mean, you're a team and everybody just like um, wide receiver and a quarterback have certain jobs they're supposed to do and you can't complete a pass unless they both do the jobs. A, uh, a section, two aircraft, mm -hmm. they cannot complete the mission unless the wingman and the lead are both doing the jobs that they're supposed right. to do. So the lead is supposed to get them to the target, get them through any resistance. So any air to air that they have to do to get to that target, execute it, and then get out safely. The wingman's job is to support the lead in executing that mission. Part of that's through visual lookout. Yep. Other part of that is uh, there are certain contracts that lead has as far as who he's supposed to shoot. 
who the wingman is supposed to shoot, where the lead is supposed to be looking for guys for enemy aircraft, where the wingman is supposed to be looking for enemy aircraft. Right. So everybody has a job they're supposed to do. And so that is mutual support in its yeah. essence. And so that's what they're getting at in Top yeah. Gun when they talk about never leave your wing. No, I agree. And the interesting thing is we don't really ever use that term, you know, never leave your wingman. I, I mean, the idea is the wingman's job is to stay with the flight lead, no matter what right. the flight lead does, and to provide lookout, as you said, for each other. It's like a dance in some ways, but there are parts of your aircraft, obviously, you can't see that your wingman can. So when it's time to come home, you can look each other over, battle damage checks, as we call it. It's the basic core fighting element because yes. two are stronger than one. And so if you do lose sight, which is a big no-no in the level two syllabus, <laughs> then you're going to hear about it. But also <laughs> then we'll have procedures for getting back together. Right. A flow, get well point, or using your radar or your radio. And so, yeah, it's expected that you'll stay together. So one other thing I want to point out that you alluded to, and I agree, is it's a role, right? So mm -hmm. if you were flying with the air wing commander, which I imagine at some point you did, mm -hmm. he might've been the lead or you might've been the lead. Absolutely. And it really never mattered other than if you were the lead, then you knew that you could count on him, even though he was more experienced to be the supporting element in a sense where you're making the decisions yeah. and vice versa. Yeah. So it really didn't matter per se of the expertise of the yeah. person. And obviously it's nice to have a much more experienced person as your mm -hmm. wingman, not a brand new guy, but yeah, that person's job is to do wingman job, yep. not lead job. So, And then the last part of Alex's question was about scheduling. And I think for the sake of keeping this relatively brief, usually you can fly with almost anyone. Of course, mm -hmm. you'll have those different level qualifications, as you mentioned, Fish. But sometimes, I don't know how your squadron did it, but sometimes like a brand new person will just fly with one more senior pilot for a while, mm -hmm. just to make sure there's continuity and consistency. But also in theater, where the missions could be very complex, you might have a pair that you fly together with simply so that you can call things standard. So in other words, the two of you at the beginning, or four of you in your case in a two-seat squadron, yeah, right. could say, hey, for the next month, when we say we're going to do this, this is what we mean. We're going to join up at 300 knots in a left-hand turn. And so there can be some reasons to stick together. And I think historically from some of the readings I've done, it sounds like like in Vietnam, they would do that as well, just because of, again, some of the risks there. Yeah, I think that uh, that makes sense. And I remember my dad saying something about that when he was flying Tomcats. He was a Tomcat reader. Oh, so they would try to keep cool. pilots and sections together for, yeah. uh, on the schedule and that sort of thing. Yeah. Um, but I was in a two-seat squadron, so my experience, it wasn't, you know, I don't remember ever being tied to a, a pilot. They tied me to a Wizzo, actually. So as a new guy in the squadron, they would schedule me with the same Wizzo as much okay. as I could. Yeah, that makes sense, because it's like a flight lead in a sense. Yeah, exactly. The crew concept. Um, so, but um, going back to something funny you said, too, that okay. um, just for our listeners, if you guys want to hear a funny song about losing sight of lead, there's a band called Dos Gringos, and they were a couple <laughs> F-16 guys, yeah. very talented, very funny. A song called Two's Blind. So if you want to look up that song, right. uh, listen to it, maybe give you a little bit of context. Blind is what the wingman says when he doesn't see lead anymore. That's right. And basically the song is about, there are lots of times the wingman goes blind and sometimes you just get tired. People don't always call blind when, they're, True. when they should call you blind. You hate to admit it. You hate to admit it. You <laughs> absolutely right. hate to admit yeah. it. So if you listen to the song and you know that context, yeah. you might get a few chuckles. All right. So blind means, I'm going to pop quiz you here, Fish. Blind means I don't see my flight lead or wingman. Mm -hmm. What is it if I don't see the bad guy? If you don't see the bad guy, you say no joy. Ah, so. no joy. Okay, perfect. All right. Let's go on to our last question. And this could be a whole episode of itself. Elliot Atkinson, he's a regular phone caller and uh, email provider here from Brighton, UK. Fish, this is going to be lightning round, okay? We're not going okay. to drop anchor on this. I'd like to hear your views on the future of manned naval aviation. Yeah, you know what? That's great that we're not going to drop anchor here because I don't know. You know, all yeah. I know is they've invested a lot of money in manned aircraft that are going to be around for a long time, right. like the F-35, and they're investing even more money in the F-18EF with mm -hmm. conformal wing tanks. What is it? Those block threes. So I don't see us getting rid of manned aircraft, uh, especially the strike fighters anytime soon. Those aircraft right. can be around for 30, maybe 40 years. Yeah. I would say my lightning round answer to that is I think you'll see it show up for ISR, as we've talked about yeah. before, maybe even just out there for doing early warning for the ship, mm -hmm. maybe for aerial refueling. But I think anything that's as dynamic as dropping bombs or doing air to air, yeah. as you said, will stay manned for a while. Yeah. So. And in fact, I think I have read some articles about 
first focus is using it for aerial refueling. Yeah. They want to get those five wet drop tanks off of the super. Oh Monday. gosh. Yes. Let's not drop anchor on that. <laughs> right. Yeah. We can move on. <laughs> All right. Cool. All right. Well, let's move on to then the feature part of the episode today. That being our interview with Duke. Let's see, Fish, you had a chance to listen to this in advance. What did, did. you think? It was an interesting interview. It was, uh, I didn't know much about the Gripen. It was, um, it was also really kind of interesting to hear a lot of similarities between what we do in our yeah. in naval aviation and fighter aircraft. So, um, yeah, it was a good interview. Cool. Well, let's let Duke take it away. All right. Today, dialing into the Fighter Pilot Podcast is Mikael Gedev, former lieutenant of the Swedish Air Force. Call sign Duke. How's it going today, Duke? It's going excellent. Thank you. <laughs> Great. Well, welcome to the show. And you've listened to a few episodes before you know the derail. Today, we I are do. talking about the Saab JAS-39 Gripen. Uh, Gripen, I'll probably mistakenly call it, but I guess you would say it. How do you pronounce that? I would pronounce it uh, Gripen in Swedish, but Gripen, Gripen is fine as well. All right. Yeah. Swedish is a bit uh, strange language. We pronounce everything a little bit strangely. So, <laughs> Well, it depends on what perspective you're looking at from. So, <laughs> All right. Fair enough. Well, you know the drill. Before we start with the aircraft, let's learn about you. Where are you from? What did you do in the Swedish Air Force? And what are you doing now? Well, I am born in the northern part of Sweden, where it's really cold. It's uh, in a small town called uh, Hernesand. I was uh, an army conscript. Uh, at the time, all uh, Swedish children or, or youngsters did the, the conscript thing. So I did 15 months. During that, I actually applied for being a fighter pilot. So, And I came in. And uh, started in 95. In Sweden, we go straight to jets. So uh, I started flying the SK-60 uh, for two years, which is a small, quite old uh, aircraft, also built by Saab. Then it was seven years on the fighter Viggen in uh, the Uppsala wing, just north of Stockholm. Then I actually uh, was thinking about quitting. I, I lived a year and a half in Australia doing a lot of other stuff. But I got a call and they said, if you come back, you can fly the Gripen. And uh, at the time, I thought that was a, a really great thing to do. So <laughs> then it was seven years on the Gripen, and I also have two years as a flight instructor at the flying school. Cool. How many years in the uh, Gripen? It was seven years in the Gripen, yeah. Sorry, I, yeah, I did ask that. What I meant to ask was how many flight hours? Oh, the flight hours. Oh, I got about 600 in the Viggen, and this, I think it's 700 in the Gripen and 700 on the SK-60 or something. So okay. it's pretty even spread. And uh, we'll get to it, but when you flew the Gripen, you had a chance to deploy, correct? That is correct. Uh, it was the first time in 50 years that Sweden uh, deployed, so it was a great opportunity. Well, there is a Hushkit article about you and your experiences both with the Gripen and the deployments. We'll leave notes and uh, a link to that in the show notes. So let's start at the beginning with what was the aircraft designed to do? And if you would, let's go a little bit more strategic on this. Most smaller countries, and I don't mean to say that Sweden's small, but relatively, it is. <laughs> um, they will buy other people's aircraft because they find it to be more affordable, perhaps. But Sweden has a history of designing their own, and Saab has been a big part of that. So let's start a little further back maybe than normal. Why does Sweden like to make its own aircraft, and how did the gripping come about? Well, I think it's always been like that. We made the aircraft from the almost from the get-go, and I know the Air Force was founded in, I think it was 1926 or something. And uh, Saab was there from the beginning and had made a lot of aircraft. So before the Gripen, it was the Viggen, as I said, mm -hmm. flew. And then it was the, called the Dragon in Swedish, at least. The Draken? Yes, the Draken, exactly. Mm -hmm. uh, which means Dragon in Swedish. Mm -hmm. And it was uh, aircraft before that. So I, I guess we have a history of building aircraft and uh, we got a whole industry to do it. And you also export your aircraft. We'll get to that in a little bit. So when it came time for the Gripen, what was the point as far as, was it just a logical extension of the Viggen and Draken, or was there a new requirement? Well, when it was designed, which was back in the 80s, I think the specs was, well, the, everything looked about the same. Was the Cold War still going on? And mm -hmm. we're still not uh, a member of NATO. So, and we were more isolated at the time, basically, in between east and west so we wanted to be fully self-sufficient so to say so we had a quite large country for the people that we were just 10 million people and we had a lot of road strips uh, that we could land our aircraft so that was basically uh, how it all started and the the jas which means it stands for fighter strike and recce actually was constructed to start on road bases 
And we didn't have air refueling, for instance, for the first version of the Grippens because the intention was to start from an, an airstrip, to go up, do its job, and then land and have a really short turnaround. Mm-hmm. And that was our strategy. And was the idea of operating from road strips that maybe in a shooting war that the air bases might be targeted? Yeah, we got a broadside towards uh, our the enemy at the time, which was mm. uh, Soviet Union, of course. And it was really hard to defend all the air bases. So we right. had a lot of airstrips. I think it was like a 50 or something. So uh, it's harder to... And we can also land on a normal road, basically. And so you could disperse the men and equipment and resupplies, land on a road somewhere, get turned around quickly, like you said, and get right back in the fight. Exactly. I think it's like five or seven minutes to turn around if you just wanted to have fuel and, and hang uh, some new uh, missiles. <laughs> Sounds like a uh, pit stop, like you might see in a race, where they yeah. quickly change the tires and fuel the car before it goes back out. It feels like that as well. So fighter and attack and reconnaissance, so um, really a multi-role yeah. aircraft. Oh yeah, from the beginning it was, I think it was designated swing role or something, mm-hmm. multi-role, and now we talk more about omni-role. Basically, from the beginning it had actually three buttons that said J A S, which was stands for fighter strike and recce. Then, <laughs> all right. So you could kind of in the air just press one of them, and it was reconfigure everything to be for a strike or for fighter. Right. But after a while, it's kind of got cumbersome, and uh, usually you do a little. In OCA, for instance, you do a little BVR and then you you go down and do some air interdiction and you don't want to switch. You want to do everything in one mode. So over the years, basically, the thinking of modes have disappeared and you can basically do everything from the normal mode. Okay. Now, is there any particular role that it excels at? You know, some aircraft are designed to do one thing, but are particularly good at something else or a subset of that. Or is it good at all of them? I think it's uh, quite evenly distributed because it was from the get-go, it was a big thing in Sweden that it was actually all of fighter strike and recce. I think it was one of the first aircraft that really, from the get-go, was designed to be all three of them. So they're pretty even. Was there a mission you enjoyed the most flying it? Oh, yeah. I am a fighter kind of guy, air-to-air, beyond visual range. Um, That's what I like, especially since I did my first uh, seven years on the fighter wig and that, that's just the fighter we can know, okay. basically strike or definitely not recce. So you cut your teeth on air to air and you found an affinity for that. So, no, I agree yeah. with you because it's a chess match and a jousting match. And then it devolves sometimes into a all out fist fight. And it's yeah. very dynamic. You have to do math sometimes. I know that sounds crazy, right? But you have to decide, OK, if he can shoot me at this range, I need to be shooting at this range and then do something with my airplane. It's exactly. a puzzle and a game and a challenge all in one. I don't disagree. But I'm guessing when you did start to do the air to surface, didn't you find some satisfaction, though, if you ever did drop the practice bombs to be able to hit very close to your target from several thousand feet up? I found that pretty gratifying. Oh, yeah, definitely. And and see the explosions. I mean, explosions are great Mm -hmm. (laughs) as well. And usually we try, since we have the aircraft to be all three of the roles, we usually don't do as much just simple air interdiction missions. We kind of try to bake everything into the same mission. So we usually start with a little BVR OCA, push them away a little bit, and one of us can go and and, uh, drop that bomb, for instance. So (laughs) it's a package. Will you ever do a mission where you might have to fight your own way in and out? For example, you might have both missiles and bombs on the same airplane? Oh, yeah, definitely. That's the only role part. We usually have uh, AMRAMs or Meteors now then, and Mm. uh, a GBU or something. Uh, One maybe under each aircraft, and then the aircraft that is closest can do the actual air interdiction then. Okay. We might call that a self-escort strike where you are going to attack something, but you're your own bodyguards, if you will, with missiles and the ability to take care of any air adversaries out there. Yeah. All right. So you alluded to the variants. Let's step through some of those. I think we have A through almost, what, F these days. F, yeah. The A and the B are very similar, right? Those were the first ones out of the game. Exactly. It's basically three different versions of it. First is the AB, where the second letter is always the two-seater. Right. That's not in use today. It was the Cold War version, basically. We didn't have any Link 16 on it, and Mm -hmm. uh, a lot of things were missing. But it it worked great for the Swedish way of thinking. Okay. Now we have the CD version, where the D version is the two-seater then. It's kind of in a midlife timing. We added uh, air-to-air refueling, and... 
three uh, six by ten color displays which were at the time when they came out at least was uh, unseen because there was a lot of screen real estate which mm-hmm. is really good for the pilot more fuel of course and better electronic warfare and all that basically 30 percent more of everything okay then we have the ef version uh where Swedish only buying the single-seater, actually, only the Echo version. But really? Brazil is buying the two-seaters as well. And that is, uh, it has initial operation capability in Sweden in 2023, I think. Brazil is getting their first aircraft in 21. It's got a, more features. It's got a, a missile approach warner, uh, IRST, which is supposed, I've heard, is extremely good. And an ASA radar as well, so it can basically look, oh, I think it's 100 or 110 degrees to the right and left mm-hmm. and up. It sounds very similar to the progression of the F-18, because you had the A and B model there, which was single and two seat with the older electronics and everything. And then the CD was the main Hornet. And then, but the E and F were all a whole different aircraft, really. Uh, they just yeah. look very similar. So the grip and E and F are probably same airframe, I presume, but a different engine, I think, too, right? Yeah, it's a little bigger as well. Got more internal uh, fuel, and uh, it's a different engine. It's a newer version of the it's the G four one four engine. I think it's the same okay. as in the Super Hornet, actually. Oh wow! Okay, yeah, that does sound correct. The G four one four. Okay. Yeah. So when you said it's a little bigger, you mean the engine, not the whole aircraft itself? I think actually the aircraft is a bit bigger as well. It's it's, oh. the, it's not the same airframe at, at least. Uh, I don't know if it's longer or and wider, but it's definitely not exactly the same airframe. Okay. Well, we can follow up with that after the interview and let folks know. Yep. Uh, no big deal. Now, what happened to all the early A's and B's? Were they converted or just retired? Some of them were converted because initially we ordered, I think it was 256 aircraft in the 80s, which is a lot for people that were, I think it was 7 million at the time. Mm-hmm. We're a big country, but we're few. But after the Cold War ended and uh, we scaled down to about 100 aircraft. So today we have 100 aircraft. I think it's 64 of them are newly built and some of them, the rest are basically converted AB versions. Okay. But they're basically totally uh, gutted and uh, remade. So. And then you talked about single and the two-seaters. For the Swedish Air Force, are the two-seaters purely for training, or will you have an equivalent of what we would call a WISO in the back to share the mission? Today, it's mostly training, but you can use them as a normal single-seater as well. They have the same capability, a little less fuel, and they, they don't have a gun. Right. We had uh, tests, and uh, a lot of people have been thinking about using them You know, with a backseat pilot. It hasn't really panned out because of different mm-hmm. reasons. Okay. And then the missile attack warning. I presume you don't mean like a radar warning where you can tell if someone's looking at you with a radar. Do you mean, hey, I'm close to the ground and someone just shot a man pad at me and I picked up the infrared sudden bloom, something like that? or The bloom uh, uh, missile approach warners, they can uh, detect the actual launch. But this is uh, IR version, which uh, can see the missile mid-flight as well. Oh, wow. Yeah, so that I think be so. Presented. That's on the grip and EF, and I don't know everything about that, of course, because uh, I'm, I'm not <laughs> actively new. in that. Yeah. yeah, no problem. Well, that sounds pretty cool. And so we talked about Brazil is getting the ENF, and then I don't know if you touched on it. The ENF also has, I think, what like one very large display, almost like the F-35 in the cockpit. Yeah, it's got a wide area display. So uh, okay. yeah, and both the Swedish and the Brazil version now has the same uh, really big screen. Gotcha. And then who are some other users of the Gripen? Uh, there's Thailand and uh, let's see, um, that's not my expertise, the other countries. <laughs> Put you <laughs> oh, on sorry. the spot. Sorry. No, that's all right. So I think the Czech Republic yeah, uh, that is- sounds like has some. And then, like you said, Thailand, I guess the Brits have like one. I don't know what they're doing with it. So we can't really, yeah, that's right. can't really count them. Uh, let's and see. Hungary. Hungary as well. Yeah, mm-hmm. that's yep. right. And South Africa. That is correct as well. So that's good because then, of course, the more that Saab sells, the lower cost per, and then they can also get more development. That's usually a good thing is when manufacturers are able to sell their aircraft. It was designed to fly fast and at treetop level, carrying 24 nuclear weapons. Today, it bristles with smart bombs and guided missiles. The B-1 bomber, called the bone by those who fly and maintain it, is the most heavily armed bomber ever built. Sleek and powerful, the bone remains a mainstay of American air power 50 years after its first flight. 
Hey everyone, this is Ken Katz, Call Sign Primetime, and my book, The Supersonic Bone, A Development and Operational History of the B-1 Bomber, tells the true story of this magnificent airplane. In this book, you'll read stories told to me by those who were there and see lots of great photos of the bone. Anyone with an interest in modern military aircraft will enjoy reading The Supersonic Bone, available through the usual online retailers and aviation booksellers. Pick up your copy today. Let's move on to why does it look the way it does? And I have to confess to you here, Duke, before starting this podcast, and then we began, of course, with the uh, typhoon and then did the Rafal, it would have been hard pressed for me to distinguish those three. All right. You know, from someone on the other side of the pond, they look somewhat similar. You know, they fighter aircraft with canards, but in this case, yours is different than the other two. So tell us why it looks the way it does, and then tell us why it's better. See, you have the benefit here of going after those other two guys, so you get the last shot on that one. Well, uh, contrary to the Typhoon, the Gripen actually looks good. <laughs> That's one difference. <laughs> no, sorry about that. Uh, all right. Uh, well, I have to take a cheap shot, of course, but, but it's smaller. The Gripen is small. It just okay. have a single engine. It's very agile, and I think it looks good as well. I don't know exactly why it looks exactly what it does like it do, but of course, one, if you have a one-engine aircraft, and there's a lot of moving control surfaces, a lot of the aircraft is control surfaces. Uh, it has leading edge flaps and uh, big ailerons, and the canard is actually fully movable, so it moves with the wind, so to say. And yeah, our Typhoon guest, Enzo, wasn't sure if the canards moved or not, and in fact, they do. We have clarified that yeah. on... Yep. previous episodes and that with flyby wire makes it pretty maneuverable doesn't it oh yeah it's very agile i think that's one of the major things with it it's a completely carefree handling so you can basically just move the stick any way you want and the aircraft decides what it wants to do <laughs> and uh, it's quite funny with the canards actually because when you're moving the joystick uh, which is centered in the aircraft and you look to your right or left on the canard it kind of feels like it's connected with a steel rod or something because the millisecond that you move the joystick the canard moves as well so it's, mm-hmm. it really feels that they are connected well it's fly by vote as i like to say on this show and <laughs> also our brains i think operate much more slowly than the processors that can take that input from you and very very quickly decide okay he wants to roll left so let's give him a little bit of the you know, canard and whatever else it's needed there so yeah but it is single engine now is that yeah obviously every aircraft design as we've said on the show multiple times is a series of compromises but is that a sob thing do they prefer single engine or is that a swedish requirement or there's some redundancy to be had in two engines but there's also some trade-offs there exactly i'm not sure it was a requirement but all fighter aircraft or light aircraft that sob has made has been single engine so it's probably that's how it is and Mm -hmm. it's supposed to be very affordable as well and two engines means a lot more cost when flying that's an easy equation and the redundancy thing, I, I don't know, that goes two ways because we haven't had a single failure of, of the engine in the Gripen at all. Wow. So that's pretty good. It speaks for itself. And if yeah. you have two engines, I mean, there's twice the chance that one of them will break. <laughs> that's an interesting Th- That's way one way to it. say yeah, yeah. counting on it as well. Well, plus it's not, at least right now, a navalized aircraft, although there is some effort to possibly do that. So yep. uh, that's one place where it can help. Okay, so even with Swedish weather, which if it's anything like uh, Denmark, where I've spent some time, it can be inclement, but never you personally or any of your squadron mates uh, had any issues with just the one engine, huh? No, the engine works perfectly all the time, or at least it has always been, knock on wood. Right, it's a lot different today than it was, say, when the F-14 was first developed, as we talked about on the show, with the A model with the Pratt & Whitney's, but even the Pratt & Whitney motors have obviously gotten much better over time with technology. So, yeah. All right. How about armament? Let's start with the gun. Not all of them have it. The two seaters have to give it up, but what do the single seat have for a gun? 27 millimeter Mauser, 120 rounds, 1700 rounds per minute. So it's a good gun. It it hits what you want to hit. So Uh okay, we don't use it that much though, because well, basically we got other weapons to solve the same thing. Well, I like to say that a gun is great when you need it. It's a pain when you don't. That's blatantly obvious. But the point being is if you end up, as our crews learned in early Vietnam conflict, with in a close-in fight without a gun, you're at a disadvantage. But the gun can also be useful in air-to-surface. Do you use it in that regard? 
Yeah, I think that's the most usable part of it. You can do it for show of force, for instance. Mm-hmm. Well, you can shoot stuff. And, I mean, you can break stuff with it as well, of course, but <laughs> right. mostly show of force because otherwise, if you want to do something, you have uh, better bombs usually to do right. that. But it can be very precise when, let's say, you're close to friendly troops and there's no collateral damage issues generally, as long as you hit what you're aiming at. So, all right. Well, what about hard points on the aircraft? How many do you have? And let's start off with air-to-air. What can you load on them? On the CD version, there's eight hard points where you could put uh, missiles on on weapons on six of them. And there's two more on the Echo version. So uh, when it comes to -to air-to-air, we got the Meteor missile, which is a ramjet, really long-range missile. Mm -hmm. I think it's about 80 nautical miles. I think it's about 60 nautical miles, uh, no escape zone. Wow. Yeah, it goes really far. And it's also, it's a bit sneaky because it's, since it's got a, basically a jet engine, it can decide if it want to go fast or if it just want to take it a little slower and go for cruise speed. So it just catch you up after a while. Hmm. So that's a really good one. And we had that for, I think it's about two years or something. So you have that already. I think it was uh, Enzo again, wasn't it? That was saying they were hoping to get that on their uh, Typhoons? Yeah, that's right. I think he said about three years from now or something. That's a a really good thing about the Gripen and Saab. They are very eager to have the new weapons on it. And then with a jet engine on a missile, and that's interesting because what you just described is not like what you'll have, let's say, on an AMRAM or a Sidewinder, which is a rocket. And the rocket either fires and it's 100%, or it doesn't fire at all, and it's 0%, but there's nothing in the middle. But the meteor is a little different. Definitely. I think the throttle, I think it's got something from 1 to 10 that you can basically, it can go really fast or really Mm. slow. And of course, the slower you go, the longer it will go as well. Right. And so my guess is, though, the pilot's not involved with that. The missile decides based on how far it is to its target, what the target is doing, speed and maneuvering, etc. That's correct. All right. So you've got the meteor. Uh, What else do you have for air-to-air? Then we got the IRIS-T, I-R-I-S-T. Uh, mm-hmm. It's a short-range missile. It's about like your Sidewinder, uh, the AM-9X. Right. Basically the same thing. So that's why I said about the gun before, because if we got IRIS-T on, on board, basically everything you see, since we got the head-mounted display, if you want, everything you see, you just point and shoot, and it will be uh, within yeah. your no-escape zone. They are really good to have. Oh, I can imagine. So, yes, you do have a helmet-mounted queuing of some sort and a high-up yeah. foresight weapon yeah. with the IRST. And so you kind of allude to, if I may put you on the spot real quick, uh, Duke, yeah. in your Hushkit article that, you know, maybe dogfighting is over. And as a former Top Gun instructor, that, of course, breaks my heart <laughs> because that's yeah. how Top Gun came to be. And and at the time, we thought, oh, it's the BVR missiles. And now people think it's stealth and, of course, high-off foresight and everything else. But I know you enjoy doing the dogfighting, but it's a skill we still need. And to your point, you could be out of those missiles or have a malfunction. I'm just hoping you're not completely against it. I know that <laughs> how pilots react, but uh-huh. I'm a BVR guy myself a little bit, and I tease people a little bit about it as well. But I mean, the missiles are really good. If you end up in a furball and no one has any short-range missiles, then the gun would be really good to have. But probably better to bug out in those situations. At least in Sweden, I mean, it's a little different. We usually will fight over our own territory. So it's fast to go down, get new missile, and mm-hmm. up again. Right. If you deploy and you're really far into enemy territory, then you have to take whatever you have, you have to make do. Right. So it might be a little different, but still, I mean, I love uh, BFM. It's so fun and definitely you learn how to handle your aircraft. Right. And that, I think, alone is a good reason to continue to do it because you look for the ends of the envelope, the edges, I should say, and learn how to maneuver. And that can be useful in emergencies and all kinds of other things. So Exactly. You've made me feel better. Now, it's, <laughs> it's not a big deal necessarily to me, but I just think it's you know interesting that history can repeat itself. But the point simply right. being is that in this day and age, let's face it, I mean, I, I can see the argument, right? We have the ability with very reliable equipment to look at somebody and shoot them, basically. Yeah. So why do we have to, in, like in the old days, get right behind them at their six o'clock? That's a skill we still think we need, but yes, it's been a long time since the last dogfight. So anyway. Yeah. All right. Did we finish then for air-to-air? You do carry the AMRAM, I believe. Yeah, we do do that as well. We've been carrying the AMRAM for, well, since the first of the Gripen versions. Okay. But the Meteor goes, I mean, twice the distance, and we have them, so it's usually 
uh, a better weapon to, to okay. have on your aircraft. It's almost like hanging an AIM-54 Phoenix, on, uh, although much more capable, because that's obviously quite old now, but it gives you that very long range capability. Yeah. How do you decide? So then, I mean, is it based on the threat or, you know, how do you decide what to load on your aircraft? And I asked because this actually came up recently. In fact, the gentleman asked, do you ever care about or ask how much the missile costs? And I responded, no, <laughs> at least we don't, uh, maybe other <laughs> no. people do, but it's usually availability. But for you, if you're doing a mission, do you have some say in what weapons you carry? And is there one you'll prefer over another? based on the threat, let's say? As a pilot, uh, you definitely can decide what kind of weapons you, you want to have. But then, of course, there are people higher up in the chain that say what you have available. Right. And they might have different reasons for, you know, uh, maybe you you don't need that meteor because someone else need it better or something. But uh, usually it's the pilot discretion and you don't mm. think about the cost. But, of course, the meteor is really expensive per missile. Okay. Yeah. But the Swedish Air Force has theoretically at least, all of those in the inventory available for use on the Gripen? I think so, yeah. They came after I quit, so I, uh, I don't know exactly how they're counting them, or ex- I don't I actually know how many they have, but I know they have bought enough. Okay. Anything else air-to-air, or else we can transition air-to-surface? Uh, I think that's all for air-to-air. I think that we have the Gripen has the option to have a lot of other air-to-air missiles as well, but the Swedish Air Force, uh, that's what we have. Because other countries could uh, maybe buy other missiles and adapt it. So everything's interchangeable, NATO standard, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. Great. All right. How about air-to-surface then? Air-to-surface, we got the GBU-12, uh, which is a laser-guided bomb. Yeah, 500-pound class. Yeah. And we got the GBU-49, which is basically the same, but with a GPS as well. And the GBU-39, which is a small-diameter bomb. At least that's what we call it. Those are the main bombs. Then we have you know, the free-falling bombs as well, I think. That's what we normally use. And the gun, of course. Okay. I thought I read that you have some rockets? Probably do. I haven't uh, used rockets since the Viggen time, so uh, okay. I don't know if they're still in use, actually. And how about any type of anti-radiation or anti-ship, like forward-firing missiles? I thought I read that you have Maverick, but what about Harm yeah. or Argum or any anti-ship stuff? We have the Kept 350, it's called. I don't know if the Swedish Air Force has bought it yet, though. Then we have a Swede, a totally Swedish, it's called the RBF-15, which is a Swedish air-to-surface missile that we have for the Gripen since the, the beginning, basically. Okay, let's move on then to performance. And we already alluded to this with the advanced fly-by-wire and the canards and excellent thrust. I mean, very maneuverable, do just about anything you want it to do. Yeah. But let's talk about, for example, max speed, max altitude, how many Gs you can pull. Yeah, it's uh, Mach 2. I think it's not Mach 2 Plus, but it's Mach 2. And I mm. personally flew the aircraft. I think it's Mach 1.85 or something. Okay. It would go up to uh, Mach 2 as well. But then you basically have to spend a lot of time and do that. And a lot of distance because you're covering quite a bit of ground at that speed. Exactly. But Sweden is quite long, so you can just fly next to it <laughs> out ah. in the sea. <laughs> okay. All right. Yeah. How high have you had one? 50,000 feet, and I have it, had it up to the limit. I think one of the sorties in the flying school is actually to go as high and fast. I mean, you do all the, the maximum limits in one sortie, basically. So you go maximum height, maximum speed, uh, maximum low-level speed, and everything. Okay. I think it was all one sortie. All right, and how many yeah. Gs can it pull? Nine Gs. Okay. I don't think you can do nine Gs in with every kind of uh, loadout, but definitely a lot more than the AB version. Yeah, and that makes sense. Obviously, if you're carrying heavy stores, you'll tend to bleed down. We didn't talk about it, but I assume you can also carry external fuel tanks? Oh, yeah, we have three external fuel tanks, so uh, that's possible. And we also have a a Recipod, which is a Swedish-made, a Saab-made Recipod, which is, that's really good, actually. And we use that a lot uh, over Libya. When that hangs, you cannot pull more than, I think it's 6 or 7G or something. Well, hopefully you don't need to unless you're being shot at. But uh, yeah, that makes sense. That puts the S in the JAS-39, right? That's correct. All right. And then um, you mentioned in your Hushkit article that you have had a chance to swirl it up or have a situation, as the air marshal would have said recently, with F-18s and F-16s in the Gripen. And yeah. it holds its own pretty well, huh? Oh, definitely. It's, if you look at on paper, it doesn't have you know the thrust to weight ratio as the Typhoon. Mm-hmm. But then the wing load is not that much. so And it carves really well through the air. So you can pull 9Gs and you can hold 9Gs for a lot of different altitudes especially if you're not uh, carrying external fuel tanks. 
So, and uh, since it got the leading edge flaps and uh, big ailerons and everything and the canards, well, it kind of feels like it carves through there, especially if you compare it to older aircraft. All right. So let's move on to strengths and weaknesses. And this is always a challenging part for me to ask it correctly. So how about this? Let's compare <laughs> the Gripen to the Typhoon and the Rafale. And what would you say in this family of canard European fighters, what are some strengths and weaknesses? Uh, we, we've talked about the looks. Of course, beauty's in the eye of the beholder, but <laughs> how would you compare it otherwise considering those other aircraft? Well, the Gripen is really made around the pilot, I would say. I mean, the HOTAS and the pilot environment is key for when the Gripen was made. And when you sit in the cockpit, the cockpit is not that big and you got three big screens in front of you. And that's basically all the things that you need is right in front of you on those glass areas. And everything that you need to do fast is on the HOTAS. There's a lot of buttons, of course, on on both the stick and the throttle. Okay. That's the best thing with it. And also the graphics on the displays are really well thought through, so to say. Great. Really helps you with the chess play. Was there ever anything, though, that you said, wow, I wish they would just fix this, or if we had more money, I'd like to have that? Oh, yeah. A lot of things. (laughs) Um, That's what I do. (laughs) I actually started a company uh, five years ago that do exactly that. So we kind of try to improve the graphics for the what's on the screens. How about with the rest of the aircraft? Any other, you know, some aircraft are smoky, some take forever to turn around. We've talked about yours could be turned around very quickly as far as between flights. Anything else on the aircraft that you wish they would have fixed or maybe your company's working on that you're willing to mention? Well, yeah, we have had the, a really good system to estimate the threat of all the enemies. And that's mm-hmm. what we do in our company. We use AI and machine learning and we kind of take that to the next level. I've always wondered why doesn't, you know, the graphics on this display, what they don't really show exactly how I as a pilot think, but we have made a system that actually present graphics on the screens exactly like the pilot usually think. Hmm. That will take it to the next level, as we hope. Well, that sounds like almost a whole side discussion on the lifelong challenge, if you will, between engineers and pilots. And because you always have engineers that want to design something one way and their brains work very differently. I'm not an engineer. And so to them, something can be very logical, but for a pilot who can be very different than an engineer, sometimes people are both, but they might want something different. So it sounds like you're taking a more pilot approach to some of this, huh? Definitely. And uh, that's why I started the company because I've been a pilot. I was a pilot for 17 years, but I actually started programming when I was 10 and I've never quit programming. So I've been always, ha- I always had a, a company on the side, which I have been doing uh, consulting uh, for programming. So it was natural for me when I quit my uh, pilot job uh, to do something that was kind of in between, but because it's not that many pilots that are both programmers and pilots. Wow. Well, so we're getting a little ahead, but we can leverage this later. Are you still doing any flying in any capacity? No, I'm not, unfortunately. Okay. Not. Well, the simulators then. <laughs> well, simulators, but yeah, that's yeah. close. Not quite the same. No. All right. Where would the listener have seen the Gripen, either in the movies or are there demonstration teams or maybe in the news? Where has it had some notoriety? I think it's uh, a lot of air shows in Europe. They mm-hmm. usually have the single uh, display pilot. Display pilot. There's not a group that I know, and at least not outside Sweden. But it's been in the actually the Transformers the last night. Ah, I think it's the last Transformers or something. Transformers seventeen or something. I, yeah, I don't know. Exactly. But but it, one of the Transformer actually transformed into an aircraft, and it chose to grip him. Well, was he a good guy or a bad guy? I don't remember, actually. I'm afraid it it was a bad guy. Probably was. All right. Yeah. All right. Fair enough. Yeah. The uh, I've not seen any of the Transformer movies other than the few seconds as I maybe sometimes flip through channels. And so every time I ask this question, someone says, oh, it was on Transformers such and such, you know, and I, yeah. well, I just, I just don't know. But yeah, <laughs> no. just about every aircraft we've covered on the show has been in one Transformer movie or another. So, yeah. All right. Now, how about a good story of you flying in one? You talk about one in your Hush Kit article, your first mission over Libya, but either that one or any others that really come to mind, maybe your last flight, those can be bittersweet. Well, my last flight was actually on the way home from Libya. Oh, wow. Yeah, because I quit after that. This didn't have anything to do with Libya, but it was basically, I thought that uh, we hadn't been out abroad for more than 50 years, as I said. And I was mm-hmm. probably on the top of my 
flying career, so to say. So I, I felt like, well, why not quit when you're on top? There you go. I definitely remember that one. It was a nice break overhead and, and everything. Was there someone there to uh, get you wet, as we do here in the States? They say they hose you down. No, sorry, because we didn't know at the time it was my last uh, oh, gotcha. uh, sorted. So it, we had a lot of uh, a free time after that, or a, a vacation, as we uh-huh. do in Sweden, we had a lot of vacation. So I, I had a three months vacation or something. Then I went on paternity leave for six months. Wow. And then after that, I actually decided to quit. But it was a long, long time before sure. that. Sure. Well, you know, there comes a point in everyone's lives where you have to decide what's the best thing to do now. You know, not when yeah. I was 20 years old or anything else. But at that point, you've had some fun. Sounds like several, what, almost 2,000 hours, maybe more of flying and fighters over a long career. And and you had to move on. And sounds like you're doing well on the outside. So, yeah, no regrets, right? No, definitely not. And you have to make a decision. Either you go kind of the career way. I didn't want to do that because I just wanted to fly in the Air Force. So I missed that train uh, a little bit. And uh, I always knew somewhere in the back of my head that I wanted to do to start a company and do exactly what I'm doing right now. Perfect. Well, that is the definition of happiness, I would hope. Yep. Excellent. All right. So is that what the future holds for you then? I mean, you're going to keep doing what you're doing with the company? Are, are you still in Sweden? I'm still in Sweden. Yep. I will be doing this for definitely a, a couple of more years or if everything goes well until the end of my work. All right. Well, that sounds great. And then the last thing, of course, is we have to know how someone came up with a call sign Duke. Yeah. It's not that exciting, actually, because in Sweden, uh, my name, uh, Grav, it translates basically to Duke. It's the same word in Sweden. Okay. So, And I've actually been called, uh, even before I was a pilot, I was called Swedish for Duke, which is Grevenden. <laughs> so it kind of was really, everybody called me Duke anyway. So Okay. Your childhood nickname became your call sign? Yeah. All right. Great. Yeah. All right, Duke. Well, this has been a lot of fun. I say every time that we could go on and on. What did we not cover that you think the listener needs to know or deserves to know about the Saab JS-39 Gripen? Oh, that's a hard question. (laughs) Definitely. (laughs) Well, or how would you summarize it? And sometimes I use these little summaries as a little get excited about the episode to play at the beginning, you know, right before the inspiring music. The Gripen is kind of a strange beast because it's it doesn't stick out in, in any way, but it's really well balanced. Sometimes it's hard to say, well, it's the best aircraft in the world. Not best in everything, but it's got the best balance of everything. And it's also really affordable. But that's not the sexy specs that you usually want. You want the most thrust or the most thrust to weight ratio or, or uh, whatever, but it's really well balanced. Well, so it's quietly and professionally getting the job done without a lot of spotlight stealing. Is that a safe way to put it? Yeah, that's exactly the same. Yeah. I mean, I'm no chef, but I understand people can spend thousands of dollars on expertly balanced and sharpened knives. Yeah. And you might think that seems crazy, but if you ever used one, apparently you can do your job so much more easily. And so it sounds like the Gripen is similar to that. Definitely. And you touched on it. We didn't really cover it, but it was always relatively affordable and and not a high cost per flight hour. I think I read right around $5,000. Exactly. So I think it's the cheapest of all the combat aircraft uh, out there. It's affordable to buy and it's cheapest uh, per hour, definitely. Well, I am all for celebrating aircraft and people that are quietly getting the job done. So Duke, this has been a lot of fun. I want to thank you for your time today. And unless you got any other parting shots, as I always say, we can wrap it up and get out of here. No, thank you very much for having me. All right, you're welcome. We'll see you. See you. All right, that was really awesome. Big thanks again to Duke. We will add links in the show notes to his company and the Hush Kit article we referenced. Fish, what do you think, man? That was a pretty awesome interview. Yeah, that was a great interview. Um, he's very well-spoken. Had definitely has some interesting perspectives, especially this, the single engine thing that uh, he mentioned. But. <laughs> he wasn't taking the bait on, you know, Sweden's got a lot of those... Uh, countries up in that area, a lot of inclement weather. And I would think an extra uh-huh. engine could be good, but yeah, yeah that's fine. Saab has yeah. been doing that for a long time and sounds like they're doing it well. He told me later, by the way, that the E is in fact uh, bulkier in some places over the intakes in the middle of the body. It carries 40% more internal fuel. When I think of the E and F on the grip, and it reminds me a lot of the E and F on the F-18. Yeah, I was thinking all the same things uh, while he was talking about that stuff. <laughs> yeah. yeah, very similar. The only thing that I'm, I've always been interested in, I, I meant to look this up before we uh, met today, but what's the difference between having uh, stabilators in the back versus canards in the front? Like, what does that buy you? 
That's the only difference I can see with uh, yeah. from everything with this aircraft to the Super Hornet. I don't know. That's a good question. And in fact, I don't think uh, Duke brought it up as much, but I remember Enzo was talking about like when you go to roll in on a target, uh-huh. well, you got this big canard in the way. Yeah. So, you know, remember the old 45 degrees back thing we used uh-huh. to do for yeah, a 45 absolutely. degree cone and all that, two bolts back, whatever. I don't know how they do that. But yeah. So it must be challenging. I found that there's uh, even with all the gadgets that you have and sensors to point you to the target, mm-hmm. when you have to roll in, there's no substitute for being able to actually look outside and <laughs> see it. So well, yeah, getting back painful. to the uh, future of manned aviation, the no, good old right. eyeball <laughs> is right. pretty darn good. It, yeah, it is no doubt. And then uh, he made a point about. If you have two engines, you double the chance of failing. I don't, I don't know. Does that ring like... <laughs> I mean, I guess that's his perspective. It's yeah. a reliable engine, right? right. Um, I remember in, I think in all my deployments, I only saw two Super Hornet engine failures. One was a bleed light, so they shut it down. Right. And the other one was actual failure. So that's out of uh, thousands of sorties, right. you know, hearing of only two failures. So, but I guess if those had been single engine jets you would have lost the jet. <laughs> Maybe. Well, the bleed, which again the bleed, is the right, hot air that's coming off, off right. the engine at several hundred degrees Celsius. You know, if you're single engine, you're probably going to keep that. Keep that on, right? Yeah, <laughs> but yeah, the other down. one to your point. And I don't know if this is true. I remember hearing like the F-35, somebody said, hey, it'll be cheaper to lose a couple than to build a two engine variant for the Navy. Yeah. So, I don't know uh, about that either. But, yeah. I hope that's wrong. You know, <laughs> but I guess when I heard Duke Talk about that. I, I thought to myself, okay, well, it's, it's not double the chance of failing. It's what happens if one fails. Exactly. And so uh, I don't mean to call him out, but again, he said they haven't never had a problem. So knock yeah. on wood, that's great. Yeah. I think the other thing that's interesting is he more than once talked about the J and the A and the S uh, uh-huh. being for fighter attack and recon. And we did, in fact, have an exclusive article that we make available to our Patreon supporters at a certain level that came out in November of 2019. So if you're interested in that, go check it out. It talks about not only the Swedish nomenclature, but some of the French stuff that they do as well. Yeah. So. yeah it'd be interesting to know what the, the words in Swedish are that get you J-A-N-S for fighter I, attack. And I, I don't know. If, and, I think it's in the article, come to so, think of it. Yeah. I don't remember because yeah. I don't use it and yeah. I forget anything I don't use, <laughs> right. but that's pretty typical. But you know, and, another interesting yeah. thing I, I, he said in the, um, in the interview too, was um, we're talking about similarities between the Gripen and the Super Hornet was they've got the same engine. And in mm-hmm. fact, the Gripen A, B, and C, D, because those are the smaller variants, the same engine as the Legacy Hornet as well. So the F-18 oh, wow. Charlie. Same engines all around. We got to, hmm. I guess that's our contract between our allies in Sweden is they buy our engines and yeah. there's got to be some other swap there. But. Oh, I'm sure. Well, there's some <laughs> missiles and things too. But, exactly. You know, we're all pals, so I'm sure we share info and different things. And I've never seen one of these fly, but it makes a wicked flyby sound. We actually oh, have it? one. We're going to play at the end of the oh, episode. Sweet. At the end of our episode, we end with a flyby and on air aircraft series. I try to get one from whatever aircraft we talked about. So oh, okay, stick cool. around everyone and listen to the uh, Gripen flyby. Gripen, Gripen. I don't think I can say Gripen. I think it's, That's Gripen. He was saying Gripen. Right? Yeah, he was. He yeah. said it too. Yeah. Did you catch this right? Did he say six months of paternity leave? <laughs> <laughs> you know what? I believe it. My uh, my brother-in-law, he did a pep tour over in Switzerland, flying okay. F-18s with them. Uh-huh. They would take the month of August off. So wow. I believe six months of paternity leave. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm surprised they don't all have 10 kids. I mean. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> well, again, thanks, Duke. And uh, thanks, Fish, for helping us talk about the JAS-39. If we can do it, we'll go back in time and get the 37 and the 35, I think, are the, what is it, uh, Viggen and Draken. That would be really oh, yeah. cool. And, uh, of course, we're always looking for other aircraft to cover. So hopefully we can do that. All right. This is the part of the show where we want to talk about our new Patreon supporters. So, Fish, don't fall asleep. I've got a lot of them. Our strike (laughs) leads are Benjamin Todd, Victor DeSanto, Nigel Creel, Jay Max, Gabriel Sebastian, Anthony Juan, Nicholas Shineda, former Master Chief Doug Stasek. And Justin Quiggle, Justin O'Brien. We have new mission commanders, Eddie Lungu and Dan Ross. And air bosses, Travis Miller and David Swafford. Fish, these guys are rock stars because they keep the show going and help me uh, give you a little beer money for helping with Twitter and all that. So these guys are making a difference. Oh, we really appreciate them, uh, your support and yeah. uh, and all the followers, in fact, because yeah. that makes us all worth it. This is well, fun. not to mention this newfound uh, gadgetry we're using to record so we don't have any issues anymore. So yeah, it's great. We really do appreciate the support, everyone. And thanks very much. All right. The views expressed in this presentation are the personal views of the hosts and our guests and do not necessarily represent the position of the Department of Defense or 
for its components. I would imagine if Duke had the opportunity, he would say the same thing for the Swedish Air Force. Fish, thanks for returning to the show and helping out today, as well as everything you're doing for us on Twitter. Man, you're a rock star, and the best thing is you're right here on Coronado, so we can get together all the time. Makes it easy, and uh, and it's a lot of fun. So thank you for having me on again, Jello. All right, you're welcome. Hey, before you go, now it's a new year. We got new topics and things. Anything particular you think maybe we ought to cover for next week? Well, you know, for the past few years, you've covered a lot of military aircraft and combat missions, both for the U.S. and abroad. Mm -hmm. Uh, Have you ever thought about opening the aperture a little and exploring other services, maybe like the Coast Guard? Ah, well, maybe we should do that. Well, stick around and we'll see. All right, buddy. Well, hey, thanks for stopping by and we'll catch you next time. Awesome. Thanks, Jello. You've been listening to the Fighter Pilot Podcast, brought to you by BVR Productions. Got a question for the show? Send an email to questions at fighterpilotpodcast.com or leave a message on our listener line at 877-MACH-101. That's 877-622-4101. Be sure to check out our website at fighterpilotpodcast.com. You can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube. For exclusive Fighter Pilot Podcast content, check out our Patreon page. Please like, follow, and subscribe to the show. And don't forget to share us with your network. Thank you for listening. Thanks to our title sponsor, National University. National University is committed to supporting veterans, active duty personnel, and military families through flexible online courses and master's and doctoral programs in high-demand fields, providing excellent career advancement opportunity. National University is a yellow ribbon school that proudly accepts the post-9-11 GI Bill and goes the extra mile by offering additional assistance to cover expenses that may not be covered by the GI Bill. To learn more, visit nu.edu forward slash veteran.